we're really in the business of information and making sure that as many people as possible understand what their options are with respect to the exit of their business. From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. All right, welcome back to the Prosperous Doc Podcast. My name is Shane Tenney and uh, glad to have you uh, with us again today for the encore presentation of my uh, good friend, uh, Kevin Cumbus. Um, if you haven't listened to our last episode, which was released just a couple of weeks ago, you'll definitely want to do that because it sets the stage nicely for today's conversation. Kevin is the president of Tusk Partners in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a firm that provides advice to dental professionals who are looking to entertain a conversation about transitioning their practice to corporate-owned dentistry. I think it's at least my swing at it, Kevin. I'll let you clean up my description in a minute here. And given his seat in those conversations, Kevin is just a wealth of knowledge and information on what is happening all around us in the field of dentistry as conversations are unfolding with private equity firms, with DSOs, and uh, certainly at continuing ed conferences all around the country between colleagues. And so in our conversation last time, Kevin kind of unpacked what's going on all around us and where the trade winds are blowing from his chair. And we realized through that conversation, when we got off the recording and turned off the mic, we realized we used a whole bunch of jargon and lexicon and vocabulary that may be completely foreign to you and which is essential for anyone to understand if you're going to be having a conversation about private equity or corporate-owned dentistry or DSOs. And so today's conversation is going to be pretty much the glossary of terms that needs to be tacked on to our last conversation. So anyway, with that opening, Kevin, thanks so much for making time to be with us again today. Dane, it's so good to be back. Thank you for the invitation. It's always fun to talk with you and educate the market about what's going on out there in the DSO space. Yeah, I've shared this with you before, and it's worth sharing again. We speak with a lot of dentists each and every day who say, look, I think I know what's going on, or could you help me understand the difference between a sale to a dentist and to a DSO? And there's a heck of a lot of differences. So anything we can do to help the broader dental economy and dentists in the U.S. understand these differences and make well-informed decisions that's the kind of work that makes me really, really happy. For sure. And and I think, why don't we start maybe by just rewinding about three minutes or so, and and I'll just have you kind of give a recap of just the marketplace. I think you do, I've heard you um, have this conversation many times. Over the last 20 years, how has the transition of a dental practice evolved? Where do things stand now? And, and then we can kind of move into our conversation today. Yeah, I've been in the dental economy now for about 17 years, right? And a lot has changed over that 17-year history. When I started, I was in, in a, working with a dental broker, and we would build, the, we would request all these information from the doctor, the financial statements, and the, and the uh, production by provider reports, account receivable aging balances, and on and on and on and on and on. And we'd build this 60-page report, and the answer that we would come to, the valuation we would come to was always the same. It was somewhere between 60 to 80% of collections every single time, irrespective of location, fixed assets, specialty, you name it. 
And when I asked my boss why this was, he said, well, there's an artificial ceiling on the valuation of dental practices that is directly linked to how much a bank will loan a dentist, because that's the buy side. That's the entire market. Dentists can't sell to anybody else other than a dentist. And the dentist buyer um, is only going to do a deal where they put no money into the transaction. And Bank of America will do 100% loan to value, 70 or 80%, and that's the top of the market, and that's why these valuations come in this way. I was like, man, we could have saved ourselves a lot of work on the front end if I, if I had known that. But it's just, it's just, so I was an econ major in undergrad, but it, it's really simple, right? The equilibrium price is where supply meets demand. And the demand for practices was exclusively uh, dentists who would be buying these practices. Well, over the years, we've seen businesses like Heartland, Dental Care Alliance, Dentistry for Children, MB2, you name it, right? There's 150 private equity-backed DSOs today that don't have the constraint of only being able to afford 80% of collections. As a matter of fact, they think about valuation the way Wall Street thinks about valuation. And that is based off of earnings. And earnings is defined as EBITDA. We'll get into the, it's a good entree for getting into the terms. So earnings is thought of as EBITDA. So let's ring the bell and say, this will be our first vocab word of the day. And EBITDA stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. How do you spell EBITDA? Since we're on a recording and we're not putting visual yep. aids in front yep. of yep. our listener while they're driving down the road. How do you spell EBITDA again? Great. So E for earnings, B for before. I before I is for interest, T is for taxes, D is depreciation, and A is for amortization. That's right. Always affectionately referred to as EBITDA for those of you following along at home. Right. So what I want everyone to hear is that's simply a, it's like a proxy for working. It's a proxy for operating free cash flow after normalized doctor compensation. So after you paid yourself like you would pay an associate. Whatever's left over after you've added back depreciation, amortization, interest, taxes, and any one-time personal or non-operating expenses, that gets to your EBITDA. DSOs, private equity-backed companies, look at that EBITDA and they, they see that's the cash flow that I should expect next year if I buy this business this year. And they really focus on the trailing 12-month period because it's the most recent. And the assumption and expectation is you enjoy that last year, I should be able to enjoy that next year. How many times that number do I have to pay you to part with that cash flow stream? And if I've got to pay you two times, that's a 2x multiple. If I've got to pay you 10 times, that's a 10x multiple. So over the course of even talking about the evolution of the of dental practice valuations, we've hit on some key terms, EBITDA and multiple. Yep. All right. You've teed up. Multiple. So let's go to multiple. Let me, I know you just explained that briefly, but we'll talk a little yeah. bit about that and then we'll uh, keep unpacking things. So by the way, just for those of you, uh, for you listening along, Kevin and I beforehand planned about nine key words that we wanted to make sure you understand. And, and candidly, I have a secret one at the end that will that will do. You want to definitely stay tuned for the, the clincher at the end, but we're going to unpack yep. nine keywords. So the first one so far in our dictionary podcast here is EBITDA. And then Kevin's just introduced multiples. So explain again what multiple is, um, what's that look like? Sure. So this is the number of times of your, so, so let's back up a second. We have the EBITDA, the multiples, how many times your EBITDA I need to pay you for what is called your enterprise value. So multiple times EBITDA equals enterprise value. 
when when we first so let's let's just kind of give some math for your listeners that I think everybody can understand. A million dollar practice running at a 20% EBITDA margin puts $200,000 of EBITDA on the bottom line. If I were to pay you five times your EBITDA, you would get a million dollars or effectively 100% of your collections, right? So that I think that that's a good example to help everybody see the way all this interacts. Let's talk about what has happened over time. 500,000 to a million dollars of EBITDA used to be worth five times. But as new buyers have entered the market, demand has gone up. There are fewer of those $500,000 to a million dollar EBITDA businesses. So demand has gone down. So going back to Econ 101, demand goes down, supplies go up, prices have risen. And that rise in prices is reflected through an increase in multiple. So multiples now are in the six, seven, eight times range And it's really driven by where your business is, how many doctors you have, a whole host of things, but also running a competitive process to where you have multiple bidders bidding on your business and you can build a competitive process that way. The only thing I'll I'll share with you on EBITDA is is our multiple as we wrap up this conversation. I've written a lot about this. I think that folks like me have actually done the service a bit of a disinterest with respect to, to multiple. Um, there's so much focus on what multiple did you get? Did you get a 10X? Did you get a 5X? I'm going to own my side of the street here. I sh- probably have played that up a little too much because although multiple is interesting, it only tells you a little piece of the story where you actually realize the value from the sale of your business is in the enterprise value and how that enterprise value is received through structure. And the structure is made up of a couple key components that I, I want to make sure we touch. Are we checking things off the list here, Shane? That's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, I had written it down as terms, but we're going to call it structure here. So sure. Great. So I, I wrote an article about a year and a half ago that actually made the phone ring over here. And it was entitled, I will pay you 25 times your EBITDA if you let me structure the deal. For all your listeners, I will pay you 25 times your EBITDA if you let me structure the deal. And what I mean by that is multiples meaningless, how you receive the cash flows is important. In that deal, hypothetically, I could pay you $1 of cash at close. And the rest of the value that I said you were going to get an enterprise value would be received in earnouts, could be paid through seller financing, very, very likely dollars you would never, ever see over the course of the relationship that we'd have together. So the DSOs are, are great. They're smart, they're capitalists, and they want to keep as much risk on your side of the table as much cash on their side of the table. So they use structure to solve for that. The three most common tools for structure that we see are cash, JV equity, and hold co-equity. So let's tick through those three terms. All right, but hold on, Bowie. You're about to introduce three good things. And I want to make sure, back up a minute, because when we're talking about the buyer, we're often talking about two things that we've just slipped into the conversation, assuming they're clear, DSO and private equity. Great, great, great. That is the buyer. Who is that? What does that mean a little bit? And then circle up to your structure, your note terms. For sure. Let's start with private equity. I think it's it's funny. Like we we hear about it all the time, but it's it's not something you see all the time in in the front page of your local newspaper, maybe the Wall Street Journal, but certainly not your local newspaper. A private equity company gets started pretty simply. It would be me and Shane, for example, saying, "Hey, I." I've had some success. I've got a little bit of money. I've got a Rolodex. I know you do too. 
maybe what we'll do is we'll raise some funds and then we'll invest in non-public businesses. So Shane and I create a private equity group. We then build a pitch deck to raise funds and we go after the uh, after wealthy folks and say, hey, we have a thesis where we're gonna invest in healthcare services businesses. Oh, by the way, we really like dental. We have some experience there. And we would like for you to give us some money and there's a minimum tranche. And then our expectation is we're gonna return that money to you over about a five year period with an expected return on investment at 20% per year compounded annually. So we go out to our network, a network says, yeah, that sounds great. We raise a hundred million dollar fund and that's the equity that we're gonna use to buy a business. So now we have a private equity company that is funded. We have limited partners that provided us the capital. We are the general partners of the fund. And now we have a ticking clock because we've got to make an investment. We've got to scale a business and we've got to exit it so we can return the money back to the limited partners. So they'll give us more money for the next fund and we can go out and do this again and again and again. Perfect. I think this is making sense. and, And I love your explanation. Part of what I think you and I love talking with each other is, you're great at making things clear. So now I understand why it's called equity because there's some money. I understand why it's private because it's a bunch of people just doing this and they're looking for non-publicly traded businesses. They're not looking for publicly traded companies, Ford Motor Company, PepsiCo, things like that. We're looking for private businesses. And so now they have a little affinity for, in this example, the dental space. How do they have some expertise? How do we package this together a little bit? Where's the DSO part enter this? Yep. So now these companies, the private equity groups, want to invest in dental practices. And what they want to do is gain access to the cash flow that lives inside of these businesses. But there are regulatory issues with folks like you and me owning cash flow that originates from patient care. And this is a a regulatory issue that's actually, it's a regulatory issue that is actually governed at the state level. And it's governed by the State Dental Association. Believe it or not, the rules and regulations around building a regulatory compliant DSO in North Carolina are vastly different than South Carolina. They are different than Virginia. Every state is different. So a DSO is actually just, it's just a legal term for a dental service organization. And all this is a legal conduit, a pathway, a contract that allows private investors the ability to pull the cash up from the practice into a new entity that we'll call Holdco. They do so through a management services agreement where they provide services down to the practice. And in return for those services, the practice then pays the management company a fee for those. And in most cases, captures 100% of the profit or EBITDA from the practice level and brings it up to the management company or Holdco level. Right. So the dental service organization, I'll just recap in my layman's terms, is the legal structure by which this group of private equity owners can provide. The private equity owners can't just take the money out of dental offices they own right. because you have this regulatory issue. And so instead, what we do is we find some way to give a service to these dental offices, which they can pay for using their profits. And so that's the dental service organization layer that exists in between the private equity investor, the money bags, the purse, and dentists and the provider. 100%. That's right. And and you'll hear DSOs offering some offer. We have centralized billing. We have accounting. We have HR. We have excellent marketing skills. We've got a digital marketing team. 
revenue cycle management, on and on and on. Those are the services they're providing down to the practice in return for the cash flow from the practice. Right. And so sometimes in these conversations, we will interchangeably use DSO or private equity when we're talking about the buyer of a dental practice. They're very closely linked because, of course, the dollars for the purchase are coming through the private equity funding mechanism. But both parties are play a role in the in the acquisition of or, or the buyout of a dentist. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so a, a private equity company will make an investment inside of a, a group of practices. And what they will do is provide strategic strategic guidance on how to grow and scale along with equity capital. But arguably as important, they will provide debt financing at reasonable rates for them to grow. Because when a private equity backed DSO makes an acquisition, they really try to use as much debt financing as possible, right? So if they're buying a practice with a million dollars of EBITDA, they know their lender will loan them four times that EBITDA in debt. That's $4 million of cash they have. And they would really like to have the doctor roll the rest of that into equity inside of the DSO on a go-forward basis. So they're not just writing checks from the LPs. They really are, if they're writing as few checks as possible from the LPs and trying to rely as much as possible on debt from their lender. That's where they really are able to goose their return and get that 20% per year compounded annually return to the limited partners. Yeah. Now, be, to be clear, just to uh, insert a little uh, asterisk in our conversation, LPs, for those of you following along, limited partners. That's what the LPs stand for. And so explain a little bit, break it down another layer. So many of us were taught by parents, by grandparents, by other people, debt bad, equity good. And so pay off your house and buy things with cash and don't finance the car. And so now you're introducing this really sophisticated business concept, which is why would I use debt to buy a private, buy a dental office if I have all these wealthy people who've pooled money together and we could pay cash? Yeah, I think there's good debt and there's bad debt, right? I think the credit card debt is bad debt. And I think mortgage debt, especially at rates we were able to buy homes at a couple of years ago, is pretty darn good debt. The way the private equity groups think about it is we want to put as little of our LPs capital at work because it will allow us to invest in a portfolio of businesses and build a diversified portfolio. Additionally, we if the bank's involved in this process, they've got exposure too and not just us. And the way they structure these debt repayments is not traditionally like you and I know in paying off our mortgage or our automobile loan. It's very low debt service with a high payment balloon on the back end to where so for cash flow purposes, they're able to utilize that cash more quickly. But again, there's a ticking clock on that leverage on that debt because eventually it needs to get paid off or refinanced. Right. Excellent. Do you understand your personal cash flow? You know, the combination of your monthly income and monthly expenses. Do you ever think about how much money you made last year and wonder, where did it all go? Understanding where your money goes today is essential to creating an actionable plan to achieve your financial goals for tomorrow. Take control of your finances by downloading the free personal cash flow worksheet. The Prosperous Doc podcast is underwritten by the financial planning firm of Spa Dameron Tenney. And you can download this free personal cash flow worksheet at sdtplanning.com and click on financial resources. Don't let another month of money confusion go by 
when you have access to free help. Again, the website is sdtplanning.com. Click on financial resources to download the free personal cash flow worksheet. Let me bring us back to where I kind of interrupted you. The buyer in these transactions is a private equity firm with a dental service organization, a DSO, providing services. And so now you you are leading into one of the most important ingredients in these whole conversations. And it's not the multiple, it's right. the structure. The That's structure right. is everything. And I think you introduced Holdco and JV Equity and, and a little bit of that. So why don't we unpack some of those terms? Yeah, so the three terms that we we brushed up against a minute ago were cash at close, JV equity, and hold co-equity. Cash at close is great, right? That's the money that hits your checking account the day the deal closes. I know our our clients love to like hit refresh on their banking app and see the number come in. Um, That is your money. That is your money forever. You can do with it as you choose. I would recommend you pay your taxes, but you can do with it as you choose. So that that component of transactions like this used to be about 80% of total enterprise value at closing you would receive in cash. That's been trending down since COVID, and now it's about 70% is what you should expect in cash at close, although there are certain DSOs that are offering you 51% cash at close. So the question is, if you're only going to pay me 51% cash, where's the rest of this money going? Where's the rest of the enterprise value going? Well, they're offering two additional areas. One is JV equity, which stands for joint venture equity. The thinking of the joint venture equity is that you're retaining equity in the business that you're actually selling to me. And because you're retaining equity in that business, I am going to allow you to enjoy distributions each and every quarter after I, the DSO, take a management fee of somewhere between 5 to 10% of top line revenue. So it helps with cash flow if you're the seller. It helps with alignment because you're not just focused on revenue creation, but cost savings. And look, I kind of if you're a young guy selling, you're a young girl selling, you've got a cash flow string for years to come with the benefit of being connected to a DSO. That may be very useful to you. But if you're, you know, kind of 60 plus years of age and, and looking at sunsetting your career and moving on to time with the kids and the grandkids and spouse. That might not be an attractive tranche of equity to you. Alternatively, what they will offer is something called hold co-equity. This is equity at the very, very top of the DSO or the management company. This is typically the same class of shares that the private equity company has, the same class of shares that the CEO has or the CFO or the leadership team. These shares are rather illiquid. They do not offer distributions. And you can only monetize them when the private equity company that currently owns that DSO sells to a new new private equity company. So if you're contemplating taking whole co-shares, a couple of things you need to know. Number one is, how long has this private equity company been connected to this DSO? How long have they been invested? Because we know now that private equity companies have about a five-year time horizon, that they're looking to get into a business, scale it, and exit it. And if a private equity company is one year in, you're going to have four years of growth on average ahead of you. If they're four years in, you're going to have one year of growth ahead of you. So that's the first question I want to know, because I want to know how long am I going to be apart from my money? And the second question I'm going to want answered is, what are the likely financial outcomes for this money? What you are going to hear 
Well, I'll say it this way. What we hear from DSOs, we quickly disregard. I mean, we, we have heard DSOs say, oh, oh, Kevin, don't worry. Anything that they roll in we is going to get a 3x return. So a dollar in, $3 out all day long. I said, we'll guarantee it. Let's just guarantee that then. Let's give them a, a preference. Let's make sure they get their money back. And no one will give you that preferred return. Shane, it's important to remember this is equity, much like a share of Tesla or Apple or pick your favorite stock. It's just like that, except for it is a non-public company that does not disclose its financials to anyone other than the lender. And there's not a lot of liquidity out there for someone like this. So we know of doctors who have sold to DSOs that have 6x their money. We know of doctors who have sold to DSOs that have been wiped out. It is just like my share of WorldCom stock that I hold on to as a reminder that stocks can go to zero. It's not common, but we have seen it happen. And so thinking about the structure, a deal is made. Let's assume that there's just to give some uh, working framework as an example. Let's assume there's a deal. Enterprise value is eight times the EBITDA or eight times the profit of okay. the, the practice. And the, uh, the, the structure of that is that 70%, oh, let's see, 70% of eight times, if we're talking about 8 million bucks, let's call that maybe 5 million that's cash at close. Yep. And so that leaves 3 million that might show up as joint venture equity, Yep. which is often kind of a path that's interesting for dentists who want to stay in practice and grow and like the bench strength of having a corporation behind them. Or maybe it's hold co-equity, uh, class A shares in in the management company, class A shares in the DSO itself. And, and then to your, your point, I know often the, the sales pitch around the hold co-equity, the class A shares is, oh, you're going to get a turn or you're going to get a roll. What the heck is a turn? What's a roll? What we hear it called most often is the second bite of the apple. Sure. Right? There you go. So it's going to be, hey, you're going to get your first bite when you sell your business to us. Your second bite is going to come when you monetize your rolled equity. And look, we have certainly seen folks take 70% cash at close, will roll 30% equity in the hold co, and on that second bite, make more than they sold, than they made in the original first bite. It can happen with well-run businesses. It actually should happen if you're early in the game and you roll enough equity. That's the reason these companies exist. But it's it's really seller beware. There are some companies out there, some DSOs out there, I would love to get a second mortgage on my home to invest in. I believe in them that much. But there are other DSOs out there that are buying dental practices that I would not invest my enemy's money with. We don't trust them. We don't believe them. We don't think they're going to get to the finish line. So you really got to know the leadership team, understand what their strategy is, and take everything that they say with a grain of salt. And we encourage folks, especially around retirement planning, to think about that cash at close as being the linchpin or the victory lap to your retirement, but do not sell your largest income producing asset without knowing that the cash at close is going to get you to financial independence. Yeah, excellent, excellent point. Well, there you go. The This was the, in fact, the bonus term that I promised everyone at the beginning. I think we've clipped through uh, nine different terms and the second bite of the apple or the turn, that is, in fact, in my example here, if if a dentist has a buyout structured with $5 million in cash up front and $3 million in basically seller equity, or sorry, in buyer equity, 
then the the rationale for that they are given is listen if you leave three million dollars invested with us then when we sell our business when we sell our dso that three million you've left with us could be worth nine million yeah 12 million at some turn some multiple there that is going to be really really attractive and i think to your point kevin it's it can be really attractive it certainly will be alluring but the devil is in the details there who is yeah, it that I, you are now investing in because you now have effectively a privately held company coming to you and saying you being the the seller the dentist saying oh you now have some money how would you like to invest 3 million in us and you often know nothing about them other than they're willing to give you the money to invest in them. Right. And you, you've probably had a steak dinner with them, maybe enjoyed a little red wine. Their goal is to really, they, they want partners. They, they, need, they need partners to grow, to hit their returns, to bring the money back to their limited partners. They can continue to build a ne- the next fund and the next fund and the next fund. They are aligned with you. They are capitalists. You're a capitalist. If the whole business doesn't succeed, they're in real trouble. I'm not saying that these are, are bad folks. I'm just saying, be careful with who you partner with. In deals like this, there's going to be millions of dollars at stake in the hold co-equity role. So just pick your partner carefully. Shane, we earlier, coming out of COVID, we were seeing some DSOs chatter about going public. And they were actually showing 12 times cash on cash return on rolled equity. And there, there's a, a group of doctors out there, I'm sure, that said, look, I, I'm just not going to get any better than this. I'm going to do that deal. And I spent some time with the leadership of that company just this week. And they said, we're, we're not, we're putting that on hold for, for the future. For how long? A month? No longer than that. A year? Oh, yeah, probably longer than that. So anything they put on paper, they don't have to do, right? People change their mind all the time. So it's just, it's really seller beware or seller be aware. Really, it's seller be aware when it comes to transactions like this. Yeah, super great advice. Kevin, Any, I think we've done great work. I'm proud of the conversation we're having. I think it's yeoman's work. I know it's super helpful based on the dialogue that I have, and I'm sure that you have. There's so many people that are are confused by all the vocabulary uh, and jargon here. Any parting words of wisdom to someone listening who is curious about this space and what's happening here? Yeah, I would say read as much as you can. Pick up the phone. I know that, Shane, y'all, y'all got a blog. are always publishing about this. We do as well. We've got publicly available webinars. Again, it's our education is our passion here. We want people to make well-informed decisions. And if you don't find what you're looking for, feel free to pick up the phone and give us a call or shoot us an email. We want everyone to think long and hard before they sell their business I also believe that we got a long runway here. You do not need to have FOMO and fear that you're going to miss the wave. I think that some people have sold too early because they thought they were going to miss out. Do not, do not, do not do that. Um, Take your time, work with your financial planner, understand what your number is for financial independence, understand what you need to sell for or have to sell for in order to bridge the gap. And then once you're armed with that number, Sit down with your spouse, your loved ones, and say, what what do we really want to do with our future and our time? How much longer do we want to swap time for money? And once we come to that conclusion, engage an advisor. It does not have to be me, but you do not want to go up against these guys on your own. It is like bringing a knife to a gunfight. So get yourself an advisor. They will pay for themselves. 
and then do it the right way, because then you'll have seen the entire waterfront of opportunities and you'll be able to exit without regret. Excellent. Kevin, thanks so much for your time, for your expertise, for your energy, your passion, your words of wisdom here. And if anybody, if people need to track Kevin down, you'll be able to find his contact information in the show notes here. Their email address is tusk-partners.com. And uh, thank you for listening. If the podcast wouldn't be nearly as fun if we didn't have people subscribing and commenting and reviewing, uh, we welcome your comments. If you have ideas for topics or guests that you'd love for me to unpack, email me directly. It's shane at prosperousdoc.com. And we'll see you back here next time. Great. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.